Hi, this is James Barris. I hope you find this talk supports you in your practice. If you'd like to support my teaching, you can use the donate button underneath my picture on Dharma Seed to do that. Your support is greatly appreciated. Uh, sometimes I, I have a, an idea of what I'm going to be talking about a few days before. Uh, and I'm kind of looking through the world with that, that filter, seeing what I'm learning about a particular topic. And sometimes I, I don't know quite what I'm going to be talking about until uh, Thursday, at which point I usually uh, go for a walk with my dog, who always uh, kind of centers me, reminds me about patience and unconditional love acceptance, and, um, and something, something usually comes up. And today was one of those days. Can, can you hear in the back? Is it loud enough? Today was one of those days, time to take Pal for a walk, about <clears throat> three o'clock or so. And uh, I was going back and, and forth in my mind about whether to... Um, whether to look at some kind of classical topic, you know, maybe do a classical teaching or um, some uh, list or something that I find inspiring from something that I've read. Or um, if there's something personal that's going on, just uh, seeing, again, what I'm learning what's really going on and what I'm learning and hopefully can generalize that so that it's not just this story, but you know, what we all can share. I thought, well, okay, you know, last, um, last few weeks have been looking at, talking more on a, a personal level, and I thought, well, maybe I should do something classical. But then I really... I realized what, that there was something that was going on and whether or not to, um, to share it. I thought, oh, another personal one, you know. <clears throat> yeah. Talking about my favorite topic, <laughs> me. <laughs> um, and then I realized if I, if I didn't share it, I would, be, I would be a little bit disconnected and that is even more important than whatever the topic is about. So, um, so I will. Last week we talked about, um, if you were here, I recall about uh, seeing the the beauty and the divine underneath the confusion. Remember, I read that story about uh, the dragon and removing the scales and one layer after another, and then there was something quite beautiful underneath. Well, this is the, the corollary to that, and that is um, seeing the confusion that's deep down there underneath the layers of, of beauty and, and wisdom. It's not the bottom layer, but there's still other layers of confusion that that we get in touch with from time to time. <clears throat> and uh, I did this week. 
So I'm going to be ta- talking about being humbled, which is uh, which leads to being humble, which is a very good thing to be humble. It's a little bit humbling to be humbled. <laughs> But it's a good thing. Um, uh, I'll just share a bit of the, the story that brought this topic to mind. It was an exchange uh, I had with somebody this week who I've known for quite some time. Actually, we, we sat a three-month course together many years ago and dedicated practitioner. Um, who, uh, who wanted to speak with me about something that was going on in their life. And I had known that this, this person had had a... Um, there was a, some series of events that has been on his mind for quite some time. And he spoke to, uh, to another teacher about it. And, uh, and she didn't know what to do. Uh, and didn't know how to how to help him, and suggested maybe he speak to me. And uh, so we set some time aside. And this person is is very um, involved in this story, which got it's 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 a pretty compelling story and dramatic. Uh, but it started from the personal about reconnecting with some person in, in his life who he, he hadn't seen for quite some time, for many years, and uh, was telling me the story, and it was, it was going on a bit. He, he got there about 15 minutes late, and I had just, I had thought an hour. And uh, as he was explaining the whole personal end, then it went into a whole other dimension of what was really underneath was that he thinks that um, he's uncovered some kind of a um, plot by the United States government um, that has major political implications. And I, it's quite possible that this is so. I, I don't know. And he talked about uh, Oprah uh, uh, being told, don't go near this, and a lot of other you know, nefarious kinds of things. And it was, he, he really kind of got into it. And um, as it was getting closer to, it was over the hours, like an hour and a quarter, and, and I, quite, I didn't quite know what, what he wanted. And uh, I just, I said at some point, what, what, do you, what do you want from me? What can I do for you? And um, he was kind of surprised that I, that I asked that. And, uh, and I, I asked it again. I said, I don't know what, what I can do for you. I didn't realize it was going in that, in that direction. And um, he got very frustrated. And then I got angry. Because he, he said some things that uh, that press some buttons, 
And, um, and I said, I, I, I lost it. I mean, for me, I lost it. Probably it, those kinds of conversations happen all the time. But for me, I lost it in the fact that I, I said, I'm really, I, you know, he was angry at me. So I, and I said, I'm, I, I, I'm really angry. I'm really upset here. I don't know what you want from me. And I was clear and, for, and firm. And that was, uh, I said, I, I don't think I can help you. I don't know what you want. So he left. And um, I felt badly afterwards. I felt badly not because I think I... I had a perfect, I felt okay about the fact that I was putting up clear boundaries, but there was an, an edge to my communication with him. And um, I called and left a message saying, I wish you well. I want you to know I wish you well. I'm sorry that I you know, got upset and, um, and I wish you well. But it was still with me for some time. I, I don't recall that kind of an interaction. And it's hard for me to call, recall that kind of an interaction, actually. I, mean, I get angry. I get angry around my, with my son or my wife sometimes, my mom, and the usual suspects, you know. <laughs> and sometimes I can, I can certainly, I can get angry with peers who can take care of themselves, but, um, but this is a bit different. And then I got a, a, um, uh, a book was sent to me uh, in the mail today from uh, somebody at Spirit Rock, um, thinking that I might be interested, and the book was on nonviolent communication. <laughs> so when I got that in the mail, I, Oh, okay. There's, the universe is telling me something here. And it was humbling. It was really humbling to see that side come out. So I wanted to talk about that. What, what happens when you're humbled by what you see? There's a, um, there's a, a saying in India, even a 93-year-old saint isn't safe. <laughs> no matter how much you think you've got it together, just one thought away. That's the corollary to last week and to something that I find really um, helpful in the meditation you know, the thought, no matter how much you've gotten confused or how much you've lost it, clarity, seeing clearly, is just one thought away. It's very great comfort. But the other side is, no matter how clear you are and together, confusion is just one thought away. So it's a kind of a binary function, you know. You're either here or you're not here. And when you're not here, okay, let's get back. Right. <clears throat> and nobody 
escapes it <clears throat> unless you're a fully enlightened being. Even then, there's praise and blame. And the Buddha, one of my favorite quotes, is saying, uh, those who speak much are blamed, those who speak little are blamed, those who are silent are blamed. In this world, no one escapes from blame. It's a little comfort when you feel like you've been blamed. Um, and even the Buddha was blamed by people who were jealous. But short of a fully enlightened being, um, other people in the Buddhist time, wise people were um, accused of really making really terrible mistakes. In particular, the, the prime example of this is Ananda. If you are familiar in the Buddha's life, you know Ananda was the Buddha's attendant, sidekick, his cousin, and uh, the person who took care of him for the last, oh, 25 years of his life. Uh, and Ananda was this embodiment of loving kindness. Ananda means bliss. Uh, everybody loved Ananda. That was his city. Almost everybody loved Ananda. <clears throat> After the Buddha died, uh, there was this council that perhaps uh, you've heard this story. There were 499 fully enlightened beings, and, uh, they, and Ananda was invited as well. He was the only one that wasn't fully enlightened, because he was so busy taking care of the Buddha, he didn't have time to practice to the end of the the course. He was just at the first stage of enlightenment. And uh, they all chided Ananda, come on Ananda, make it an even 500, that story. And uh, it said that he was going back and forth and working really hard the night before and finally he was just getting himself all wound up in knots. And it said that he just, he remembered the Buddha's words about relaxing when you're trying too hard and he just uh, took a rest, and in the moment before his head hit the pillow or head hit the the mat, and uh, his feet were just about up on the on the cot. In that moment, he became fully enlightened, and he appeared in the hall magically the next day. And they figured that he that he got it. He spontaneously came into his seat. I don't know if that's so, but anyway, the one thing that the Buddha had, uh, that Ananda had, is uh, supposedly a miraculous recall. So he was there at all the uh, discourses by the Buddha, since he was taking, he was being his attendant, and he was a very significant figure at this council because they wanted to remember the Buddha's teachings. But it seems that um, he had made a few mistakes in his. Uh, in his time with the Buddha, and he was taken to task for them. One mistake, there, were, there was a whole series of them, I'll mention two. One mistake was that he, um, he was with the Buddha when the Buddha said, after I'm gone, you can abolish uh, the rules, the lesser rules, the ones that aren't so important. You know, there's 227 rules as a monk. Uh, and some of them are major and some of them are minor. And the Buddha said, after I'm gone, you can abolish, abolish the, the minor ones. But it turns out 
he didn't ask the Buddha which were the minor ones. The, <laughs> so uh, this got him into trouble. I'll just read, this is from, uh, from the Pali Canon. Uh, the Venerable Anandatoli Elder Bhikkhus, Lords at the time of the Blessed One's attainment of final Ibbana, he told me, if he wishes, the Sangha can abolish minor and lesser rules when I'm gone. But friend Ananda, did you ask the Blessed One what these minor and lesser rules were? I did not, Lords. And then it goes on, they, they quarrel about which are the minor and which are the major ones. This is fully enlightened beings, right? And it says, um, Finally, uh, they say, where is it? If we abolish these minor and lesser rules, there will be those who say the training rules proclaimed by the monk Otama to his disciples existed only for the period ending with his cremation, and they kept his training rules as long as he was present, but now they've given up those training rules, and they, were, they didn't think that that looked good. So they, since they couldn't decide, they said they decided to keep all the rules, right? Then the elder bhikkhus said to the venerable Ananda, friend Ananda, Ananda, this is a wrongdoing on your part that you did not ask the blessed one which were the minor and lesser rules. Acknowledge that wrongdoing. Right? Yeah. Yeah, kind of on the spot. And he says... It was through want of mindfulness, lords, that I did not ask the Blessed One that. I do not see it as a wrongdoing. Nevertheless, out of faith in the Venerable Ones, I acknowledge it as a wrongdoing. Okay. Then, a couple of other ones, they nail him on, but, uh, and he, does, he goes through the same one, in the same process. I didn't, I didn't see it as a wrongdoing, but I acknowledge it as a wrongdoing. The big one, though, was that when the Buddha, about a month before the Buddha died, or a month or somewhere one to three months before he died, and he had a premonition. He knew he was going to be dying. And he said to Ananda, uh, they, were, they were talking about how long one can, one can live. And, um, and the Buddha said, for a for a fully enlightened uh, Buddha, for a Buddha, one can live as long as one wants, okay, if one chooses. Okay, and that was interesting for Ananda, but he didn't say anything beyond that. He didn't pick up the comment. He didn't say, oh, please, um, will you stay here for the next thousand years or whatever. He didn't say it. But later on, when the Buddha was clearly uh, dying, Ananda said, you told me that, uh, that a Buddha can live as long as, uh, as he wants. Please, we, uh, please don't die. And the Buddha said, it's too late for that. You, if you had picked up the, the hint and asked me at the right time, then I would have stayed around. It's a heavy one. I'm, I'm, I'm telling you the real scoop in the Pali Canon. So he says, uh, 
This too was, they say, this too is a wrongdoing on your part, that even when such a broad hint, such a plain sign was given to you by the Buddha, you did not beg the Blessed One, Lord, let the Blessed One live out the age, let the Sublime One live out the age for the welfare and happiness of many, out of compassion for the world, for the good and welfare and happiness of gods and men. Acknowledge that wrongdoing. And he says, it was because my mind was under the influence of Mara that I did not ask the Blessed One that. I do not see it as a wrongdoing. Nevertheless, out of faith in the Venerable Ones, I acknowledge it as a wrongdoing. That's a tough one, huh? This guy who served with the greatest care for his whole life, and here at this council, he's, he's accused of not prolonging the Buddha's life. Now you can look at that and say, well, who were the unskillful ones? Was it Ananda or was it the, the other folks who said, okay, now see where you blew it. In either case, somebody's made a mistake here. Can you imagine how humbling that must, that must have been if anything like this happened? You know, all your peers saying to you, you blew it, acknowledge this as a wrongdoing. And then with the grace that Ananda does, saying, I acknowledge it. I don't see it that way, but I acknowledge that it's a wrongdoing. Um, last week I mentioned that I was, I was reading uh, Jack's forthcoming book, After the Ecstasy, the Laundry. And uh, it just so happens that the chapter that I was reading, this is another part of this synchronous uh, uh, message from the universe, the chapters that uh, I'm reading are about what happens after one wakes up. And uh, like he says, after the ecstasy, the laundry. And there's a chapter here on the dirty laundry, too. But the, the, this uh, passage that I was reading, or this, this chapter that I was reading yesterday, was about people who fall from grace, it would seem, after they've had very deep openings and understandings. He interviewed a number of teachers uh, from all different traditions for, for this book. I thought I'd read a few passages. One from this guy, from uh, a lama, who, um, a Western lama, who came back and says, when I came back, it was as if my 12 years of experiences in India and Tibet were a dream. The memory and value of those transcendental experiences was in some way a dream challenged by the culture shock of returning to my family and to work in the West. Old patterns came back surprisingly quickly. I got irritable, confused. I wasn't taking care of my body. I worried about money, about relationship. At the worst point, I feared that I was losing what I had learned. Then I realized I couldn't live in some enlightened memory. What became clear is that spiritual practice is only what you're doing now. Anything else is a fantasy. And there's one 
dramatic sharing about this teacher who really crashed. One American teacher, a seeker for 20 years, finally realized the fullness of freedom with a guru in India. He was ecstatic for a year, resting in perfection, drenched in silence and love, as he said. After his wife became pregnant, they returned to the U.S., and in a short time, the spiritual joy he had found drew friends and seekers to him. Within two years, he had daily meditation groups, a center, hundreds of students. His path seemed to be unfolding perfectly, and he thought he'd gone beyond the troubles of the world until a crisis came. This is him talking. I had always worried about my students, how unstable their wisdom seemed. After the first profound realization of emptiness and freedom, the painful tendency of many people was to become caught again in separation. But then it happened to me. I received a crash, crash course in confusion, panic, and depression. It started when I became very sick with leftover parasites from India. Then all the money I had saved for years and invested in two thriving businesses was lost through bankruptcy and betrayal. All of a sudden, the guru was sick and poor. I'm talking about himself. I became terribly frightened. My family life became a place of conflict. We had to leave our home to struggle with money to worry about ordinary things. I had difficulty with my mother. And all the while, I thought I shouldn't be feeling these things. I'd been to the peaks, after all. I thought I knew the whole game. Finally, I had to stop teaching. I lost all control. I reached a childlike stage where I wasn't trying to understand things. I was just broken down completely living moment to moment, and in some way, that's when my spiritual life really became genuine for the first time. That's often how it is, you know. If you think you've got it together, the universe comes and just kind of bops you over the head and says, oh yeah, check this one out. And that next fall, is as important and profound as being on the mountaintop. Because then you really can relate to the ways that people get confused and lose it. And you also see that your work is not finished until you're completely free of greed, hatred, and delusion. And it spurs you on to not be complacent in your practice. We talked about that the Buddha himself, after, I think I said this uh, in, uh, in a recent talk here, after he was uh, enlightened and, and uh, touched the earth when Mara was trying to confuse him, uh, after that, after being fully enlightened, Mara would come to visit him from time to time. Mara, the embodiment of illusion or confusion. A number of times, it's said in the, in the scriptures. 
And then Mara came to visit the Buddha. And the Buddha would say, I see you, Mara. So if Mara can come to the Buddha, can come to anybody. I'll read, uh, I'll read another one. This is from Bhagavan Das. If you're familiar with Be Here Now, he was the, uh, uh, the California surfer who was uh, Ram Das's teacher and brought, bringing him to, uh, actually, you know, he was his connection to, uh, Mahar- to Neem Karoli Baba Maharaji and was his first teacher. And he came back, especially after Be Here Now was this huge success and people wanted to get a, a hit of Bhagavan Das. Right? Six foot four, blonde, top-knotted yogi, spent seven years in India walking barefoot, meditating in caves, chanting in ecstasy the names of God. Um, he introduced Ram Das to his guru, who made the story part of his 1960s classic, Be Here Now. Bhagavan Das traveled throughout the West with Ram Das, teaching and singing for great spiritual gatherings. And then this is his own words. I came back to America and found myself on stage before thousands of people. I named babies and blessed people, and people fell at my feet. I felt like a king with my patrons and movie stars, but I was still a kid, a guru at 25, sitting on a tiger skin in a Manhattan townhouse. If you play with the Divine Mother, she'll play with you because she's everything. She's all the desire, the anger, the lust. She's everything. If you want name and fame, you can have it. The Mother will give it to you. But what I had attained in practice came through the grace of being with saints. You hold that space through the blessings of the saints. And when I began indulging myself, I stopped my real practice and I lost everything. Spiritual life is not a once-and-for-all game. It's an ongoing process. After three years of spiritual life, the kind that was really just a party, I got sick of it and wanted to be home with my children. I rejoined the world and sold used cars in Santa Cruz. I became a businessman, and I gradually lost my sense of divine completely. Twenty years later, a friend took me to see a visiting saint. I fell into a deep meditation for three hours. Then my guru's voice came, Maharaji, and I wanted to sing God's name. So that's what I've been doing since. But this time I'm being more cautious, watching who I spend time with. You need to be careful if you think you've attained something because you can still lose it. You have to keep your spiritual commitments and your practice going. Now I'm just trying to be a real human being, and if others can learn from my experiences, then it all happened for a good reason. As a a spiritual person, if you might think of yourself as a spiritual person, or somebody who values the spiritual life, there can be a kind of arrogance and superiority sometimes that creeps in. You know, as you 
read the newspapers and see all the, the craziness or look around you and see people yelling at their kids and you know, thinking, God, why don't they get it together and be spiritual like me? Yeah. Have you ever seen that? That slight stance of knowing something that others don't? Subtle kind of superiority or arrogance? Well, when you're humbled, it's a very um, important thing to integrate. Because what it does, the value of it, is that you learn another level of compassion for other people's foibles and for your own humanity. In humility, there is humanity. It's right in there. So you get a sense of a connection with others. It shakes up your complacency. And as you become humbled, you become humble. Now, the ultimate humility does not have to do with me at all. There's this uh, Chinese uh, or this uh, um, uh, Chan student, Wei Wu Wei, a great writer. He said, true humility is the absence of anyone to be proud. That's real humility. Ain't nobody there. So that's the kind of humility that comes when we're not taking ownership of our wisdom, not, hey, I'm pretty wise, pretty spiritual. And we're not taking ownership of our mistakes either in the sense that we feel small to the point where we beat ourselves up but we see that there's wisdom that comes through and there's confusion that can come through. What humility does also is it is a doorway to um, forgiveness. When we are truly humbled and we see our humanity, there's a possibility of forgiveness it's required to process our mistakes. If we don't, we just go ahead and either close ourselves off to that part or feel righteously indignant and, and get really confused some more. That forgiveness is seeing that we can change. We're not any one way. We're sometimes wise, we're sometimes ignorant. So I wanted to uh, just lead you through a little bit of a, a reflection for you to connect with this in your, in your own, and then we can uh, perhaps share together. Okay? I'd like you to go inside and uh, think of a, a situation where you lost your center and acted in a way 
that you regret. It could be something recent or something from the past. And if you can, have a, uh, a picture that reconnects you with that experience. Where you lost your center and acted in a way that you regret. Now, as you remember that, just get in touch with this quality of humility in your humanness without beating yourself up, but just see, oh yeah, sometimes I can, I, sometimes I can lose it. And then uh, just reflect on these things. What was happening that made you lose your clarity? Maybe some button got pressed or triggered, or you're in a particularly raw mood. What was happening? If you can, bring uh, the wisest part of you to explore this. And if you can get in touch with why you lost your center, if you can understand why, can you forgive yourself for a moment? See what it would be like to forgive yourself. Just imagine if you, if you can't access, access it right away. Now, if you can forgive yourself for just being confused, just go the next step and see how this can lead to forgiving others when they do the same, when they lose it when they're confused. You might think of another time somebody in your life uh, recently who lost it. And from your own inner exploration to get in touch with their confusion and See if it's possible to forgive them out of that understanding. And if you can do that, just feel the connection, the different connection with them that replaces the, the arrogance or replaces the shame in yourself, just to feel where you meet in this 
human experience. All just trying to do the best we can. Notice the difference comes from that change from superior or inferior to just a sense of connection that we share that quality of losing our center and the capacity to forgive. Okay, and then when you'd like, you can open your eyes. Okay, so uh, let's take a, just a little while to share if anybody would, would care to. What'd you get? Don't be shy. Yeah, so pass this back. This is a talking stick. All the way back there. Uh, raise your hand, Emily. And put it right to your lips so everybody can hear you. James, it's actually a question. Um, why, why do you think, can you hear me? Why do you think um, an enlightened being needs to be asked or begged to stick around rather than just making the decision themselves. Are you talking about Ananda? I'm talking about Ananda. Why why did, why to, did he to need ask to ask forgiveness to uh, No, why did he need to ask the Buddha to stay around? Mm. Why why can't the Buddha just decide to stay around? Why does it require somebody else asking of you that? No idea. I can't answer that one. Yeah, it seems to me they were just giving him a hard time. Yeah, yeah don't know that one. How about your own, um, your own experience? Anything that you got in touch with? There's a lot um, that I get in touch with about... Um, Losing it. <laughs> um, much more than being a person who loses it, I'm um, a person who comes from a family of people who have lost it with me. Um, and I've been the uh, object of people losing it. And I've been the one to always not lose it. Um, and I think there's a, de a, a decision in my life about um, my degree of separateness from others who uh, 
who I feel are um, dangerous to be around because of because of the losing it. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, that that's another that's another issue. It's very important to protect yourself from people who lose it where there's a danger. <clears throat> so, yeah. Okay, thank you. <clears throat> well, when you told the story about the guy who told you about told you about this conspiracy and everything, uh -huh. it occurred to me that you know what you've talked about when you just came back from um, Thailand and how relaxed and how much fun you had and everything like that. And if this guy had been the first interview when you just come back from Thailand, it occurred to me that you probably would have said to him, "Well, you know, listen, I, I'm not in these high government circles. I'm, I'm not." You know, in the uh -huh. NSA, I'm not in the CIA. I don't get debriefed every day. <laughs> I really don't know. Uh -huh. And yeah. I don't know. But I don't think you would have got mad at him or anything. Uh -huh. <laughs> yeah, it's definitely, I was, I was feeling um, stretched. I was definitely feeling stretched. But still, yeah, I lost it. Yeah. And, and it sounds like he was probably kind of overloaded, too, from this whole thing. Yeah, he was very intense. <laughs> very intense. Yeah. And that, that, I think, I kind of felt I had, I had given, I'd tried to meet him for quite some time. And, uh, yeah, so what happened? I got a talk out of it, at least. <laughs> In the back over there. Hi, James. Hi. I'm Howie. Um, I just want to say it's really refreshing to hear you talk about getting angry. Because it's who we are. It, it's what is part of our makeup as human beings. And um, not so much in the Sangha setting, but my experience with you know, teachers or people that sit in front of others and teach don't talk about them getting angry. It's like they're in a position where that's not okay and it's just refreshing to hear mm. you talk about what we all go through mm. Mm -hmm. um, and that we're all equal on that level. Mm -hmm. mm. Oh, good. Yeah. Good. Thanks. Yeah, until you're finished with the trip. There's attachment, aversion, and delusion. Yeah. Oh, good. Thanks. Yeah, pass it up. Um, my name is Michael. I, I had a recent um, experience with this that I'm still kind of getting over. I had a a conversation with my brother, I called him to really just check in and wish him love yesterday, just to say hello and hope he's doing well, and I get hooked into this familiar kind of addictive, heated argument. Mm -hmm. 
over the Pope. <laughs> that lasted, it lasted two and a half hours mm. on a long distance phone call that I paid for. <laughs> to and all the way through it, I was trying to skillfully remove myself from the conversation without hanging up. And we were hollering at each other. It was really, really sad. And I could, all I could feel was the suffering around it and the sadness. And it was this familiar, addictive, I've got to be right, you're uh, wrong, uh, i got to get one more point in. And I was telling him, I'm trying to see my pattern of being right that I'm trying to let go of. And I feel we're doing it in this moment. And mm. nothing... I couldn't, I couldn't let myself somehow, it was really sad. And in terms of being humbled, you know, I felt, I feel like I do so much to try to have this peaceful life and here out of nowhere, I was it's having like a beautiful that. morning and out of nowhere it crashed. <laughs> yeah. And I was a real part of it. It wasn't yeah. him, it seemed like him, but uh -huh. it's obviously my own, you know, stuff. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's... And, um, it's kind of hard to forgive sometimes to kind of just let that all be the way it is, conditioning, yeah, and not own it, you know, not make a thing out of it, make yeah. an I or a big story out of it. And, and that's, uh, you reminded me of something that uh, I was noticing. I mean, it just, it reverberated through my body and, um, you know, even though I made the gesture and, and left a, a, a warm message afterwards, it was so yeah. unpleasant mm -hmm. that, I, and I think that when when people are not used to doing something like that, it's that much more a jar to the system. Mm -hmm. And it, it crossed my mind: oh, this is probably what people, you know, most people go through a few times a day, or many people a few times a day, uh, you know, having heated discussions. Mm -hmm. Unpleasant heated discussions. There's, think of how many people, what percentage of the population went through a heated, angry discussion today. It's, it's not that rare an event. But it was, it was just so jarring, like, ooh, gosh. And that's one of the prices that you pay, actually, for you know, having a bit more... Um, development of of another way that yeah so it was really humbling i woke up this morning you know early morning thinking oh god yeah i really did that and just thinking about this this guy on the other end you know it, it probably was pretty hard cuz i did not play into his into his drama and he was very disappointed it was unpleasant. It just stayed with me for the last 24 hours. So, well, be kind to yourself. That's the basic message. You know, we all can lose it just like that, whether we're enlightened or not enlightened until you're fully cooked. It's just a moment away. So, You might actually this week explore this when you do lose it, if you do lose it this week, okay? Maybe you won't if you're 
lose it free for the week, uh, then enjoy that. But when you do lose it, if you can remember to, um, to just know that that is part of the human experience and you, there's always a fresh start. It's always a new beginning. If you can make amends where, it's, where you can, but mostly with your own humanness, just to acknowledge your own humanness and just start again, just like with the meditation. Okay, so uh, we'll close with a, a short loving kindness. Just uh, feel your breath through your heart and breathe in kind, loving energy from around you. And fill your being with that benevolent energy that's here. And as you breathe out, surround yourself with that energy. Get in touch with the sincerity that you bring to your life. And we'll do a few moments of forgiveness if I've caused anyone suffering in any way. I ask your forgiveness. If anyone has hurt me or caused me suffering through their confusion, I forgive you. And if you're not ready to forgive, then forgive yourself for being just where you are. And then send some kind thoughts to yourself. May I see clearly. May I have compassion for myself as well as others. May I express my love well. May I be happy. And then sending these kinds of thoughts from your own heart to everyone in this room and radiating out in all directions, to all beings. As I want happiness, may all be happy. May all see clearly. Through confusion. May all 
develop compassion for themselves as well as others. May all beings grow in kindness and love. May all beings everywhere be happy. Okay, thank you. Have a good week. See you next week. This talk was given by James Barris at Berkeley Sitting Group on March 23, 2000. It is an offering of the dark. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.